0: Hi, everybody. This is Matt Cockrell, and I'm here today in the second edition of the Young Americans for Liberty show. We're honored today to be joined by Stefan Kinsella. Mr. Kinsella is a practicing attorney prominently involved as a libertarian activist and political theorist. He earned his JD from Louisiana State University and his LLM at the University of London. He is currently a senior fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute and a prolific writer on what the legal structures of a free society would be. Stefan, it's great to be with you. I always like to begin on a personal note. So why don't you tell us about your story? How did you come
1: to Liberty? Well, I'm from Louisiana, and uh, I'm from sort of a conservative background and uh, kind of an early Reaganite type, but I went to Catholic school, and then I was at Catholic high school in Baton Rouge. There was a librarian I was friends with, and she would recommend various books to me, and I think I was around 10th or 11th grade, and she recommended The Fountainhead to me. And uh, so it started with Ayn Rand, and... and, uh, I read Ayn Rand and several books from there, of course, Henry Hazlitt and Bastiat and eventually Rothbard and the Tannehills, and the whole
0: libertarian literature at the time. Well, you certainly are a great libertarian, Stefan, but that's a term that obviously means different things to different people. Specifically, there is a sharp divide in libertarianism between advocates of small government and minarchism and anarchy, or more precisely, anarcho-capitalism. You've been a heavy critic of monarchy, narrowing the question in your writings to, are you for aggression or are you against it? Can you elaborate on this criticism? Yeah, I
1: think that, um, uh, you know, I started out as a minarchist uh, myself, um, uh, listening to Ayn Rand's theories. Uh, but, of course, you realize after a time that most of the critiques that she makes of, of the state uh, apply all the way down and would apply even to her advocacy of, of, a, of a minimal state. Um, and uh, what I found is that there's a sort of activist tendency on, on, the, on the mindset of uh, people where they, they start to confuse or conflate activism and tactical considerations or strategic considerations with truth. And so you'll find a lot of times sneaking into conversations when you talk to minarchists or the more activist or political types, you know, they'll say things like, well, that can't be true because that's not going to persuade people. So they start to conflate truth with what works or what sells. And while there is a role for activism and strategic considerations, I think we have to be careful not to uh, mix up persuadability or what sells with what's true. And so, you know, you'll find things like, uh, well, your advocacy of anarchy is, that's not practical. That won't work. When what it means to be an anarchist is simply to be a consistent libertarian. It means to oppose aggression on principle and to recognize that the state inherently and necessarily commits aggression and is an aggressive entity, an institution. And so, in my mind, saying uh, uh, anarchy is not practical or won't work is simply beside the point, or it's a category mistake. It it would be similar to someone saying, um, well, you're against murder, That's impractical to be against murder. Well, it's not impractical to be opposed to murder or crime. It means you think it's wrong, it should not occur. It doesn't mean you predict it will never occur. It doesn't mean we predict that there will be a state reached where there will be a crime-free society, for example. So that's why I'd like to pin down these people that say that they are miniatists or they oppose energy. And I say, well, if you're against energy, are you in favor of aggression or do you think the state doesn't commit aggression which one is it it keeps them from trying to change the subject to well you haven't shown me that anarchy works saying you haven't shown me anarchy works is like saying you haven't shown me that a crime-free society works well of course a crime-free society would work if people just didn't commit crime and so i like to put it in those moral terms to, to sort of force people to take a side and it is somewhat successful this approach because you know you will have minor cases. They will finally reluctantly say, "Well, yes, I do believe in some aggression. I think the state has to commit a little bit of aggression to prevent greater aggression." Fine. I think that's an honest approach. They finally admitted that they actually are in favor of some aggression. So they're not consistently opposed to aggression. They're not consistent libertarian. Now, some like the Randians would say, "No, we don't. We don't support aggression. We think that it's not aggression when when the state." Uh, that's what it needs to do to protect rights. And they have this kind of convoluted, contextual argument, which I think makes no sense, really, to be honest. Well, you
0: make a powerful point there that really, I think, undermines sort of the pragmatic argument. This is something I've been struggling with for a little bit now, but uh, certainly persuading others or a practical case uh, for what will work isn't exactly a principled argument. And most people come to libertarianism through principle So I think that's a pretty powerful point. But anyway, whether or not there is a state, a truly libertarian society would, in our view, use the non-aggression principle as a basis for any legal system. The NIP simply states that it is always illicit to aggress against the innocent. But can you elaborate to our listeners on what the implications of truly upholding this principle would be? Yeah, I mean,
1: I I think in a way, aggression is not fundamental or primary. It is sort of a a conceptual shorthand. It's a way of describing um, the type of property rules that we favor. Um, Aggression, so so basically, I think the essence of libertarianism can be described as opposition to aggression, but you have to ask what aggression is in our conception. Aggression basically means the use of someone's property without their permission, or the invasion of the borders of their property, which includes their bodies. So, in other words, every time you identify aggression, or say there is aggression, you are implicitly holding out some some view of property rights. So an act of aggression implies a certain uh, understanding of property rights. And so the libertarian view is unique uh, from other views. in, In a sense, every political system has some view of property rights. So if you find some scarce resource, it will allocate an owner to that resource, whether it's the state or the person that the state transfers it to after taking it from the original owner, uh, et cetera. But the libertarian view is that we want to allocate ownership so that scarce resources can be used in a conflict-free way. In a sense, that's the essence of property ownership. And in a sense, every system that does advocate some view of property rights is inconsistent if it's not libertarian because the very purpose of property rights is to assign one owner to a resource so that it can be used without conflict but if you assign this owner without taking into account the necessity to um, to do it in a way that minimizes conflict or makes conflict for use possible then it's sort of a, uh, an incoherent system so the libertarian view is that basically the first owner or the first user of a scarce resource has to be its owner and the reason is because if the first user didn't have a better claim to, the, to a property than a late comer then there can be no property rights really because if the first comer didn't have a, a good claim to property then the second comer who takes it he doesn't have a good claim with respect to people that come after him so there's no property at all there's just possession there's sort of a, um, a rule of society then and so view, of course, is that um, the only actions that are legitimate in society are ones that do respect others' property. And I think that uh, there is sort of a, there's a debate in libertarian circles about this sort of thin, thick issue, whether libertarianism is only about non-aggression or is about other, a cluster of other related virtues or, or, or ethics or ideas. And of course, we're not just libertarians. We're more than libertarians. We're humans who live in society. Um, uh, but I, and I do believe that, um, the, 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 the libertarian, any society that was libertarian would have, would have reached it by most people becoming in favor of the non-aggression principle, which means in favor of property rights assigned to minimize conflict. And that implies, I believe, a, a predisposition or a willingness to cooperate and to have dispute resolution. So I think any libertarian society would not only have, Basically, the non-aggression principle implemented and the locked in homesteading rule implemented in terms of what property rights there are. But you would have a predisposition of people to, whenever they do have a dispute, they would be predisposed to try to settle it in a peaceful way. Do it arbitration, have neighbors help them settle their dispute, compromise, reach some reasonable agreement, something like that. So basically, it would be a very peace-seeking, harmony, cooperation-oriented society.
0: Well, obviously there are some issues that are disputed about how to reach the non-aggression principle. Certainly modern warfare, taxation, and drug legalization are not matters of dispute among serious libertarians, but a few contentious issues do arise. One of these that has been in the news as of late is gay marriage, where state legislatures and courts have been legalizing in several states. Libertarians seek to protect voluntary associations and abolish state interventions, but how does this translate into a position on gay marriage?
1: Well, in my view, this is one of these issues where the libertarian perspective can be much superior to uh, to the typical conservative and liberal views on things, which are uh, weighted down by all sorts of uh, confusing baggage. Um, but even sort of the standard libertarian approach seems to borrow a little bit too much from the conservative perspective on this. And I think if you just think very clearly about it, you can, you can see what the right approach is. And that is, obviously, the optimal approach would be to have no government at all, in which case you would simply have a society with private relationships and with um, contractual relationships respected by private justice mechanisms. People could call their relationships whatever they want. You know, there's free speech. And if you use an idiosyncratic term, or people think it's bizarre. You know, if you live with your sister and you call it a marriage, you know, you're free to do that, but most people probably wouldn't Use that word for that relationship, which is their right as well. When the government enters the picture, um, I think that, uh, of course, the again, the ideal solution would be if the government is going to exist, then it should it should really not be in the whole business of decreeing what marriage is. The, the job of the government, that if it's going to monopolize the courts and the mechanism of enforcing contracts and contractual regimes, then I believe that the government has an obligation to enforce contractual regimes that people enter into voluntarily. Um, You know, Robert Nozick said that the libertarians libertarians believe in capitalist acts between consenting adults. And I agree with that. And so I think the proper way to view it is there's there's of course a personal romantic or uh, some other kind of relationship people have, which is their personal lives. But these things sometimes have what I view view of as legal regimes legal consequences or contractual consequences. And that's what the state should be enforcing. And so if someone has a marriage, which would probably be a private ceremony, say done in a church or even done privately, and they hold themselves up themselves out as married, the government's only job would be to enforce the contractual aspects of that regime and the, the normal um, presumptions of the parties, or they may sign some kind of form that says what kind of regime they want, which would include things like co-ownership of the removal of property, like houses, guardianship rights over any children, uh, inheritance rights, visitation rights for, you know, uh, for hospitalization, um, decision rights for, for each partner to make decisions for the benefit of the other partner if they're incapacitated, those kinds of things. So what you have now is you have the state does do this, but it does it with a statute which has the word marriage in the title of the statute. So basically, if, you, if you're going to, the, the state is going to respect these kind of regimes, it has created this artificial category it calls marriage and requires you to be in that category if it's going to respect your contract, the contractual aspects of a, your relationship. So my view is that, you know, I think the state should take the word marriage out of the statute and it should simply respect any contractual regimes that any number of people want to enter into. It could be 17 people, people, 3 people. Uh, Two people that can be related or unrelated or buddies or homosexual or heterosexual, it doesn't really matter. Um, but my view is so long as the state is going to sort of shoehorn the protection of personal relationships, contractual regimes, into this marriage category, then they have an obligation to let people voluntarily apply for it. Now, I think that the opposition to gay marriage is just it's frankly bizarre on the, back, on the part of conservatives and conservative-oriented libertarians. Um, yeah, you'll hear things like um, it undermines marriage or it threatens marriage. I don't, I frankly, don't understand that. It doesn't affect my marriage. Um, basically, basically, what they're objecting to is just one single word in the caption of a statute. And to me, that's irrelevant. I mean, people are free to call their relationships whatever they want. And you know, just because someone is they have their contractual regime of their of their homosexual uh, union respected in the civil courts. And just because the statute has the word marriage in in the caption doesn't mean that a a religious or conservative person has to recognize that as as marriage, or even call it marriage. So I believe that so long as the state's going to be involved, they do need to enforce uh, the the, the wishes of parties. I think it it harms gay people who want to have a relationship and want to have it respected for the state not to recognize their wishes. I mean, I think it's frankly uh, obscene and unjust for, you know, a gay partner to be denied access to visitation rights in the hospital for a terminal lover, things like this. I mean, you know, if the state's going to, uh, going to monopolize this field, it needs to provide services to people and not denied. Yeah, I wish more people would come to the libertarian
0: position on this issue because, Obviously, you know, there's a lot of different people in this country that think differently about these issues because of religion, because of maybe personal bias, but really I think most people would be able to get along if they just realized, hey, this is a personal matter, and this isn't a public issue, and if the state were to get out of marriage, I think we'd see a lot less creative energy being wasted on what really is a silly debate about other people's personal romantic and sexual relationships. Um,
1: I, I agree. I think it's silly. And I think, you know, I, I, I used to be opposed to gay marriage on the, on the narrow grounds. And I, I still have this feeling to a degree. I do think that the main, the main impetus of the homosexual lobby for gay marriage is not what I just described. I think there's, I think it is on the part of some people. I know some gay couples and they, they just want to live their lives and, Have their legal affairs recognized, and you know, without a lot of complication. But I do think that uh, it's it's sort of a thin end of the wedge argument. I think that they want to use the power of the state, which already recognizes what's called marriage, which everyone recognizes as sort of a legitimate standard thing in society. They want to force everyone else in society to think of gays as being normal or um, on the same status as heterosexual couples by using the state to force them, and they want to, I believe. A, a, a race discrimination against gays legally, um, or, or, or rather, they want to use this to force the government to include homosexuality in all these suspected classes. Uh, so, in other words, it would be illegal to discriminate against homosexuals on the basis of homosexuality for employment and things like that. So, I do think it's, it's the danger of this is that they want to use this to extend any any uh, any discrimination law and things like that to gays, which of course is unlibertarian be a bad result. But on the other hand, it's the conservatives who who are not opposed to the state regulating marriage in the first place. So really, I, I think they have no grounds to complain if they're going to have the state regulate this and monopolize it and declare what's marriage. Then I think for the reasons I gave earlier, they, uh, they have no grounds to object to the state uh, recognizing the contractual aspects of gay marriages as well
0: attorney that has practiced an intellectual property, you have called for the abolition of all IP laws. From what I understand, your argument is that IP must be illegitimate because it coercively bars peaceful people from producing, or rather reproducing, a product or idea with their bodies and minds, and that that IP laws would not exist in the absence of a state. But how would you respond to the minarchist criticism that IP laws are merely protecting an individual's property, and how would society deal with the ethical implications of stealing another individual's intellectual product drift of legal sanctions.
1: Well, um, yeah, I, I'm a patent attorney, and um, well, actually, that's a, only a very small part of my job nowadays, but um, I've been doing it for a good 15 or so years, and um, um, have a great deal of experience you know, obtaining patents and uh, related uh, IP-type work for large companies like Intel and companies like this. Um, and, you know, when I was first starting out as a libertarian, as a libertarian um, I assumed that Patents and copyrights were were legitimate, like most libertarians do. In part because it's been part of the fabric of. Uh... And when you read like Ayn Rand's uh, article justifying patents, it's a strange argument from her because normally she's very um, principled and not really utilitarian. But her argument sort of goes back and forth between utilitarian and uh, principled concerns. For example, um, she you know uh, she would respect as a as a as a good solid Minnica she would respect normal property. or consequentialist, uh, which is sort of unlike her. Her argument never made sense to me. It always nagged at me. um, And uh, when I went to law school, you know, I would always think about it, and I I figured there must be some better justification for it than this. And then I started practicing patent law, and of course kept thinking about it. And, you know, it finally dawned on me that I was having no success because it's actually unjustified in the first place. And if you have a sound understanding of... The origin and nature of property rights and their justification, and you'll see that there's no way you can justify these things. And in fact, IP is nothing but a state privilege that undercuts property rights. Um, and I think that the the mistake is sort of the, um, the s- uh, sloppy reasoning among libertarians um, about the origin of rights and this idea of cre- creation, which used to appeal to me, but the more you think about it, you'll see. Uh, I mean, you'll, you'll hear Rand or, or other libertarians say that, you know, there are several ways to come to own property. You could homestead it from the wild, uh, someone can give it or sell it to you, uh, or you can create it or produce it. And that sounds reasonable at first glance. Yeah, it's things that the person does to, you know, with his body and with his effort and his labor to come to own something. But creation is actually not a third category, and this, the, the, uh, the idea that it is has caused a lot of confusion. And, and there's, it's easy to see this with some examples. I mean, let's say that um, your, your neighbor has a you know, big hunk of marble in his yard, and you sneak over there at night and you carve a, a beautiful statue in his marble. Well, you've created a statue which is valuable. But obviously you don't own it or you shouldn't own it because you didn't use your own marble. You used your neighbor's marble. In fact, you should be prosecuted for uh, a vandalization of his property. Um, Or if you're paid by an employer to carve a statue, say, of his grandfather into his hunk of marble, you still Mm do not own it even though you produced it. He owns it because that's part of the contract, right? Um, And by contrast, let's say you own this hunk of marble which you found in the wild, or you bought from someone, so you have ownership of this piece of material, and you carve a statue in it, do you own the statue? Yes, but you don't own it because you created the statue. You own it because you already own the marble. So creation, in the first case, is not efficient for ownership, and in the second case, it's not necessary. Um, in fact, if you say that creation is an independent source of ownership, then you, you basically have to intrude on and undermine the other rules for assigning property rights, which is the, the first first possessor rule of the Lockheed Homesteading Rule. And this is exactly what happens in the case of IP. Basically, the state says this. If you register with us or come up with some sufficiently novel or unique or creative pattern, okay? In the case of copyright, it would be uh, an original work of authorship, like a novel or a poem. Basically, it's a pattern of words or something like that. Or images for a painting, uh, or in the case of an invention, it's a it's some kind of uh, inventive and unique and novel and non-obvious uh, set of steps for doing something, or arrangement of matter for a, for an apparatus or an invention. So basically, these are all patterns. Th- these are all ideas. They're basically uh, recipes. You can think of them all as recipes. Things that you know that you can use to guide your action. So the state says if you. You know, originate one of these ideas or one of these patterns then we will give you basically a type of veto right over everyone else in society's ability to use their own property that they already owned so for example if I own the copyright to um, you know say the Star Wars movies like George Lucas um, then the copyright includes a bundle of rights not only the right to stop Production, but also uh, uh, derivative rights, things like this. So, if I own the copyright to Star Wars, then I can get a court order and stop you from selling a book that's printed on your own paper using your own ink. That's, say, for example, uh, you know, Stephen Kinsella's continue, Continuing Adventures of Han Solo, something like this. A even if it's a totally original story. Okay, so basically. They are given a a, a veto right over my property, which is a partial ownership right, because ownership is the right to control. So now I used to have full control over my property, but now uh, 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 George Lucas has partial control over my property. He's a co-owner of my property with me now, and the state gave him that. So basically the state took part of my property right from me and gave it to George Lucas. So you can see that... State enforced IP rights basically amounts to a type of redistribution of, of ownership of wealth. Or, it's a type of theft, basically. So I'm completely opposed to it because it's, it's, uh, it doesn't respect property rights. Now, most IP opponents, in a way, are anti-capitalist or, or leftist, and they sort of bought into the, the myth that the, the IP proponents accept. They all sort of accept that IP is as a type of capitalist property. And so the the IP proponents support it because they think it is part of property. And the IP opponents oppose it because they think it's part of property, and they oppose property rights or capitalist property rights. The proper view is to realize that you should be in favor of property rights, and for that reason you should be opposed to IP because it is contrary to private property rights.
0: I think the IP issue is pretty fascinating, actually, when you describe it in that way, because libertarianism is obviously an issue of aggression versus non-aggression. It isn't a uh, moral philosophy or anything of the kind. And I think you'd agree that stealing another person's intellectual product and trying to pass it off as your own is dishonest and immoral, but it isn't an issue where there's an aggressor
1: involved. I think it is, and I, th- I think that, um, you know, the more you think these things through and you understand how real life works, um, yeah, there, there are morals to all this, and I, I mean, look, people are willing to contribute voluntarily, you know, they'll, they'll put money in the tip jar or things like this nowadays for authors or for artists that they respect and admire, but, you know, uh, imagine imagine uh, if, you, if someone's starting a new company, I don't know, a, 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 a hamburger restaurant. Sure, they, they could... In their McDonald's. Now, I, in my view, that, that could be fraudulent if, if you're deceiving your customers and you're basically lying to your customers about the nature of your hamburgers. And if you do that, you're going to go out of business pretty soon because you're going to be seen as shoddy and be sued and things like that. But the truth is, any good businessman wants to put his own name on things. He doesn't want him to lie. He wants to start his own business and say who he is. Yeah, he might have a similar color scheme to McDonald's, he might have a similar menu but he wants to call it you know um, um, Burger King or something like that different um, so I mean you're gonna have a few fly-by-night businesses but any le- legitimate business that's successful and grows is going to be started by an independent-minded creator or businessman who wants to do his own thing um, you now and, and, th- and consider this too there are millions of public domain works out there right now especially you know the are really old ones there's nothing whatsoever preventing you know me from publishing tomorrow, um, you know, can sell republic, just basically copying Plato's Republic and putting my name on the cover. I don't know if I'd sell very much, I would become a laughing stock. It would be just a you know, you don't even need a fraud claim. It's just that when people start doing these things they, they they're seen as jokes or laughing stocks or very marginalized they become very marginalized. I mean, you know, so why don't we have rampant plagiarism of these public domain works, people just putting the names on there and selling the books. No, because I don't want to buy Kinsella's Republic. I want to buy the original Plato's Republic. No one's going to buy it anyway. They're going to think this guy's a kook. So I think it's, you know, just standard practice in in any kind of society would, would limit a lot of this because it just makes no sense.
0: Well, we've discussed an issue that is unethical but wouldn't, under libertarian principle, constitute aggression. Let's move now to actual criminal justice theory. In The Ethics of Liberty, Rothbard describes a libertarian punishment theory that at least I agree with, which involves retributive justice and proportional punishment. Do you agree with Rothbardian justice theory? And if so, what constraints do you put on it?
1: Uh, I'm largely in agreement with it. I mean, I, I've uh, I've written on this myself with, with sort of a few different twists. Um, I think that Rothbard, I mean, Rothbard was wonderful. He was great. He was so wide-ranging in his thought. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's to be expected that in a few areas he, um, his formulations could be improved a little bit. I think, for example, um, in some cases he was a little bit too prone to armchair theorizing, okay? And so I'm a little bit more skeptical of saying what the rule would be. For example, he and, I think, Walter Block, or maybe just be Walter, I can't remember. Uh, They're so intertwined on some of these issues. Um, You know, they had this view of two teeth for a tooth. And I understand the reasoning behind that. You know, the idea is that um, if someone commits a harm against you, you're entitled to basically do that back to them, but that just gets you even. Then you're entitled to do to them what they did to you, so that's basically twice. And I think the reasoning behind that is attractive and intuitive, but it's a little bit too mechanistic to say literally two teeth for a tooth. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say that, uh, you know, the, the private justice system of the society would have exactly that rule, but it would maybe model those, those kind of considerations. Um, in my, my view, there is a strong – and I think even Rothbard agrees with this – we could expect the justice system of any private society to largely be restitution-based, because it just makes so much more sense um, for a whole host of reasons. Um, but I believe that there is a right to retaliate in force. And I think it's based upon um, um, some of the considerations Rothbard lays out, subtle so like the tooth teeth for a tooth rule. But I believe that in practice people wouldn't use it that much. It might serve as a model for helping to determine a more objective award of damages or restitution, for example. So I think a lot of libertarians think restitution is primary. But I think it is, in a way, secondary, although it would probably be the dominant mode of justice in a society. So, for example, a pure restitutionist, you know, restitution is the idea of restoring someone to the place they would have been in before the harm happened. So he's trying to undo the effects of the harm, which is really impossible in most cases, uh, for personal crimes anyway. For a murder victim or a rape victim or a victim of violent assault, you know, the crime cannot be underdone, undone it's just done. I mean, that's part of the problem with the nature of crime is that it can happen and it can violate people. And once they're violated, they are violated. Paying them a sum of money does not undo the crime. And if you're just in favor of pure restitution, I'm not sure what it even means to say that they've been, they've been restituted or they've been restored. You know, I gave, I gave the, 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 the rape victim was paid a million dollars. Well, okay, so what? How does that mean justice was done? Um, So I I think it's it's better to say, look, she's the victim. By the principle of proportional punishment, she has the right to retaliate against this guy, proportional to what he did. And it's it's up to sort of the the norms of the libertarian society to determine what's proportional, but uh, you know, I could see an argument made that. numerical values, you know, for for different crimes, like, you know, murder is $3 million and rape is, you know, $1.2 million or whatever. And if that was established, then yeah, that actually would allow billionaires to just get away with it. You know, Bill Gates could go do whatever he wants and just write a check every time he does it. Well, by by a a a retribution-based justice system, even if restitution was the only thing that was awarded in most of the cases, you would determine it by the amount of retribution that could be imposed. And so, you know, if Bill Gates raped someone, then he could be you know tortured severely in exchange. He may be willing to give up, you know, $50 billion, half of his fortune, to avoid that kind of severe torture or incapacitation. So it would solve the millionaire problem right away. Um, But I do think that, you know, restitution for a large number of reasons would tend to be the dominant mode Used in society, I mean, if, 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 for one, for one thing, if there's a mistake, you know, cause you know, humans are fallible, any justice system is fallible, and can make mistakes. And so, you know, there will be a cost associated with inflicting actual punishment on convicted criminals, because they actually may be innocent, or may turn out to be, they may turn out to be innocent. And if you've executed or punished or jailed someone for a long time, and it's later discovered that they were innocent, well, you know, then maybe they have a big remedy against the justice system and the the, the original victim that prosecuted them. And so, you know, I think that the the rules of the insurance companies and the the private defense agencies and justice agencies that that govern these things, you know, it would tend to penalize the resort to retribution because it's more expensive. So people would tend to go for the safer route, which is...
0: I really do enjoy reading and learning from your pieces on mises.org and .com. But one of the things about your tone that disappoints me a bit is your apparent pessimism about liberty's eventual victory. Do you really think that the grassroots organization are fighting a feudal battle? Do you merely confine your skepticism to politics? And if so, why do you keep fighting? Well,
1: those, are, those are good questions, and it, it sort of it goes back to what we talked about earlier about... Um, um, the anarchy minarchy thing, and it's just keeping in mind, uh, clearly distinguishing, you know, different types of goals or principles, Um, Mike, what really concerns me, as I said, is that the, uh, I mean, of course I'm not opposed to activism, and of course, in a sense, I am an activist and involved in the movement, Um, is if you're I I don't, in a way, I think uh, that question is irrelevant. I mean, we fight because we think it's the right thing to do. And that's why I think people should fight. And yes, I do think we should fight. I think it's important to be on the side of right and good and the fight for justice. Um, in fact, I think that the, this sort of activist mentality and this sort of rah-rah optimism, uh, which a lot of it does come from politics, which I am very skeptical of politics, um, I think actually that is, leads to more pessimism and defeatism and more compromise, more sell-outism. Because you have these people that start thinking, you know, it's all about victory and getting results. Which of course leads to compromise and moderating your message. Which, even that, is fine, in my opinion, as long as you don't, um, as long as you don't uh, advocate things inconsistent with liberty. But yeah, a small incremental change in favor of liberty is, is, of course, a good thing. But I think that over time, some of these people become self-deluded because they start feeling, if I don't think liberty is achievable, you know, in the next five years or in my lifetime, then I will be demotivated. Then I'll give up. I'll be dejected, and I don't want to do that. So I have to kind of lie to myself that yeah, victory is right around the corner. In other words, they're afraid to be realistic about it because they think it will demotivate them. My view is that it shouldn't at all because we, we, you know, our goal, our goal is of course to increase liberty, but we don't have to, you know, fail to acknowledge that it's a it's an uphill battle, and there's a reason that we're you know we're losing to some extent. There's a reason why we have statism in society. Um. No, I think it's great to fight for liberty. My, my, I mean, my personal view is that the only way to achieve... Look, we already have a type of liberty, libertarianism in place in society. We have largely voluntary respect of, of people and neighbors and citizens of each other's property rights. They're just not consistent about it. You know, but you know, most people wouldn't steal their neighbor's car if they could get away with it or break into their house if they could get away with it. They respect their property rights. And the, the more widespread is the respect for property rights, then the more li- a libertarian society we can have. So my opinion is the only way to really achieve liberty is to basically improve the overall um, ideals of people or beliefs of people about private property rights. And to be honest, I think you can never have a libertarian society um, without people who, for, for whatever reason, voluntarily choose to respect each other's rights. That is, they're benevolent. They're, 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 they're civilized. So the only missing ingredient, in my opinion, is economic literacy. And most people are decent, they just don't understand economics. So they favor all these policies and, and infringements on liberty because they have a confused view of economics. I mean, that's not the whole story, but I do believe if you know, everyone in society understood Henry Hazlitt's economics in one lesson. We probably have a 98% libertarian society right off the bat. So in a way, that's why I think like the Mises Institute, the Foundation for Economic Education, the groups that spread economic literacy and sound economic thinking is the most important thing we can do now is there hope i mean yeah i think there's hope that things can get better um you know events can be good educators Uh, after the fall of communism in in the late uh, 1980s you know since then there's sort of a widespread begrudging maybe reluctant but a widespread acknowledgement among almost everyone that you know Extreme communism just cannot work. Some form of capitalism has to be in place to generate the goods. And that's a big step forward in a way. And, you know, who's to, to, I can't predict what's going to happen going forward, obviously, but um, with this internet connected world, with uh, uh, the the continual increase in technology, and hopefully with the continual increase in productivity, um, despite the government's attempts to stop it, um, you know, we, that's Oh, if you if you um, if you lived in a libertarian society where there was no state, there would be no institutionalized crime, but there would still be some private crime. You know, you're still going to oppose crime, even though it probably will always exist to some degree. It's just the right side to be on, and I think that's what libertarians are. Libertarians are people who have consciously chosen to be on the right side of things. They're more civilized, and they're more consistent. And I think it's good to fight with and be part of those people. So I totally encourage activism. Uh, I don't think it's futile, but I, I do think that we have to be realistic about what we can really achieve and not be demoralized and, and give up when we don't achieve victory you know, in five years. Well, um, I'm a
0: little too young and idealistic to want to concede your point, even though you do make a lot of sense about how liberty isn't going to be achieved for a while. I do have to agree with you on the politics side of it. I'm very skeptical of bringing about any meaningful and certainly principled change in at least that capacity. Well, anyway, we're going to have to leave it there, Mr. Casillo. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. For our listeners, please view Stefan's archive at lourockwell.com, his pieces at mises.org, and order his landmark book, Against Intellectual Property also for Mises.org. Thanks very much, Matt. I enjoyed it.